Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitching to keep the world's first and longest-running podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. We take stock at the new year. It's 2019. But where's our country? What's our mood? Who would you trust to tell you about the real world out there when all we talk about really is Donald Trump? We trust Steve Walt because he holds himself to an independent, realist standard in foreign affairs. What's urgent, what's possible, what's ours to do. And he keeps score, as a lot of pundits don't, by results, not intentions. Welcome back, Steve Walt. We're counting on you for the big picture this New Year hour, but would you just start small on the wreckage known as Syria? Classic instance of Trump being Trump at the end of the year. The I alone president declares, we're out of there, and we'll be out of Afghanistan too one of these days. The Beltway legacy media rose up in shock and fury. General Mattis resigned. Trump bent to that storm, but you wrote, getting out Getting out of Syria was the right idea all along, and so said others, I gotta say, we, that we wreck, read and respect, like Jeff Sachs, like Steve Kinzer, and then Elizabeth Warren running for president. What did that episode teach you? What should it teach us? I think the, uh, the whole sort of flap over Syria is illustrative of the, the degree to which Donald Trump, uh, for good or ill, has thrown a monkey wrench in the establishment's thinking. And he's done that since 2016 when he, remember, called American foreign policy a complete and total disaster, said we needed a completely different right. approach, totally different people. Um, and uh, what he picked up on was the sense that uh, American foreign policy since the end of the Cold War had been mostly a failure, that many of the big projects we had uh, attempted uh, throughout the world had not gone particularly well. And the American people, I think, intuitively understood that, whether you're thinking about Iraq or Afghanistan or what mm-hmm. uh, was happening in Syria. Um, and I would also add to that sort of the effects of globalization uh, uh, performed as we had done it since the, the 1990s. And Syria was just that whole thing in a microcosm. So the United mm-hmm. States is in, has 2,000 troops in Syria, but we don't really know why. We don't know what strategic purpose they were performing uh, any longer. Uh, it wasn't clear that it was clear that we were never going to be able to determine the politics of Syria. We weren't going to determine Syria's fate with 2,000 people on the ground there. There was no diplomatic uh, strategy there. There was no sense that what happened in Syria was going to matter to uh, Americans at all. And so Trump said, "Well, why don't we just take those people out?" Now, in typical Trumpian fashion. He did this without any interagency planning, without any sense of timetable, without any sense of exactly how you would go about doing it. He didn't talk to any of American allies and give them a heads up what he was thinking about doing. Mm. And I think this was not the reason why uh, James Mattis decided to resign. I think it was the straw that broke the camel's back and that, that Mattis had but the, been... the unanimity of the reflex, Steve, strikes me as part of the story. Mattis was suddenly sainted. The Kurds are going to die, panic, and... Uh, Everything Trump said, he had forecast really in those debates with with Hillary Clinton. She said the generals know what they're doing. He said, Hillary, they don't know what they're doing, and it's going to stop. So it was predictable, but there was something surreal about that clash. I think he, he was doing better with on the street than 
any of the newspapers or media gave him credit for. I, I think there's no question here because, again, if there's been a sort of dominant theme in American foreign policy for the last 25 years, it's been that there are sort of no problems in the world that can be solved without active American leadership, that the United States has to be in charge. As Madeleine Albright uh, famously put it, the United States is the indispensable power that sees further. And that's why the United States ends up getting its fingers in all sorts of little problems that ultimately do not matter very much to the United States. And where we are attempting to run the local politics of countries that are very different than we are, that resent foreign interference, that don't want to necessarily be transformed into an American-style democracy, and certainly not on any kind of reasonable mm. timetable. That has been the central theme of American foreign policy under Clinton, under Bush, even under Barack Obama. Um, and this project has not gone particularly well, especially in the Middle East, but not just in the Middle East. The, the, the indispensable nation has had a sort of gone fish sign out for, 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 you know, two and a half years now. Um, speak of that wider world, which is why we wanted you here all along. Uh, we can't talk about this stuff anymore in the Trump world. But in your book, The Hell of Good Intentions, um, the short form is that this illusion of American power has been vastly overextended, bad for the world, bad for us, by what everybody now calls the blob the empire's thinking class that cannot see the folly of its own blunders really since Vietnam, certainly since the end of the Cold War. Give us three instances that we should know something about, we should be debating, we should be reading, well, opening our minds to. Uh, I mean, there's sort of two ways to look at it. First uh, is to just reflect on where we were in the 90s and where we are today. In the 90s, there was great optimism. We thought democracy was going to spread, that markets were going to spread. Our relations with Russia and China were actually relatively good. We thought peace was coming to the Middle East through the Oslo process. So there was great optimism in the 1990s, and that was the period that the foreign policy establishment got very enthusiastic about basically trying to create a world in which every country would be like the United States. We were going to spread democracy uh, everywhere uh, we possibly could, peacefully if possible, but if necessary with military force. Um, now, if we look at the world of 2018, of course, our relationship with Russia is terrible. Our relationship with China is very bad and getting worse. Uh, the Middle East is a mess. The peace process is non-existent. Europe Right, uh, we're seeing a democracy backsliding in Europe and elsewhere. So this whole project that began in the early 1990s has basically failed. And the shocking part is that the foreign policy establishment, right, uh, both Democratic and Republican, not to include the president, Democratic continues to believe that that's the foreign policy we should continue to pursue. That the United States should be engaged in every corner of the world and be trying to shape local politics in all of these places. We're going to determine who runs different countries. We're going to tell them what their politics ought to be. Uh, and that has not worked well so far, and I don't think it would work well. And yet the foreign policy establishment clings to this. Um, this is the mystery. Even as you recite the optimism of the 90s, the thought of spreading democracy everywhere, I mean, I, I, I reached for my gun <laughs> in hindsight. I mean, it was a loony ambition to begin with. But get to this establishment. You catalog Virtually every foundation, every spokesman, every lobby, every columnist, every everything, uh, very useful. And yet I still think you're too kind to them, Steve. You, you speak of mostly a failure of the greatest country in the world over the past 50 years. That gets to be like my life, my adult lifetime. It, it's where are the trials? Where are the where are the sort of um, public firings? Where are the I mean, short form? Why? are 
Andrew Sullivan and Tom Friedman still defining speaking as if they had any authority. The, well, there's, there's several points. One is within any establishment, and the foreign policy establishment is a very good one because it is an elite. It's a well-educated elite for the most part. It's a very self-protective community. And I say that as someone who's, shall we say, something of an outlier within that world. I mean, I teach at Harvard. I'm a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. I've uh, spent time at think tanks in Washington. So it's not like I'm sitting here uh, totally disconnected from that world. But you've lucked into an independent um, in it. But the key is within that world, your success, professional success, depends on your reputation almost entirely. Do people respect you? Do they think you have good judgment? And what that does is enforces conformity. You do not advance your career by challenging any of the orthodoxies of U.S. foreign policy in any kind of serious way or challenging America's right and wisdom to try and manage almost all of world politics. If you start questioning that very much, you are not going to be picked for that next presidential administration. You're not going to be promoted at that next think tank. And people in the blob understand that. So regardless of how well their policies are working, people don't want to question it. And that's why, of course, when somebody like Donald Trump comes along, Republicans and Democrats alike within the establishment are horrified by everything he does. And I say that as someone who's not a Trumpian in the slightest, but he's going up against a very well-developed orthodoxy, a set of institutions that are well-paid, well-funded, that all are in favor of promoting a sort of this idea of American global leadership as but being wh- indispensable. Why are they not judged even among themselves by their, their follies on the war in Iraq, the endorsements? Uh, you say that you're judged by your record. Why are their records not used to indict them, to hang them? Because everyone is worried. First, for, first of all, there's personal connections. People don't like criticizing their friends. But second, everyone's worried that if you start holding people accountable, they will subsequently be held accountable themselves. There's a lot of mutual back-scratching and self-protection. But you're reminding me, when I was in college, uh, the, the presiding figure in that establishment in the public way was Walter Lippmann in the Herald Tribune, God rest him, he was outspoken, he was venomous, he was heartbroken, he was passionate, he was a very good writer, too, about Vietnam. Where is that voice in your establishment? Uh, there, there are, I think, f- fewer and further between than they used to be. It is, again, a much more conformist establishment, particularly within journalism and particularly at the highest levels, so the sort of commanding heights of the Times or the Post or, or the uh, Wall Street Journal. And this is not a new phenomenon. I mean, what happened to McNamara? He became president of the World Bank. What happened to Mac Bundy after Vietnam? He became president of the Ford Foundation. So we've seen this movie before, but I do think within almost any elite, and by the way, I would say the same thing with respect to the Catholic Church or universities, there is this self-protective in- instinct. Once Self-protecting you're... even as the ship goes down. This is, I, I have to say, I, <laughs> I like the Lincoln-Chafee rule. He was the only senator, the only Republican senator from Rhode Island who voted against the Bush, Bush authorization uh, for, the, for the Iraq war. And he felt every public official who endorsed that war, who voted for it, should quietly retire in a kind of disgrace. I feel even more strongly in the, in the media, the, the cheerleaders, the, the William Sapphires, the David Brookses, uh, Andrew Sullivan's, who 
egged that war on for career reasons, for misreading out of pure ignorance, have never been held accountable. I agree completely, and that's one of the points I, I make in the book. One of the reasons you don't see the same accountability inside the, the government institutions is uh, you still need those people if you want to run the world, right? And this is, I think, what Barack Obama discovered. He did have a different view in certain respects. He becomes president, and he suddenly realizes that if he wants to keep the United States deeply engaged and shaping the world in a variety of ways, and he's, I think, a very moral individual there, you're going to have to rely upon that same establishment because there isn't an alternative establishment ready and waiting to take their place. And that's one of the reasons you end up recycling the same people and the same policies and getting the same results. But then you get into a strange riddle about who's really calling the tune here. Um, he didn't have to go, go along with all of them, but we'll come back to that. Coming up, the Irishman, Fintan O'Toole, is the perfect type of the offshore world watcher who could help us see ourselves as others see us. Fintan O'Toole is next. This is Open Source. The wise man at the Irish Times, Fintan O'Toole, pictured our world between wildfires at the close of 2018, the infernos on the ground in California, the runaway firestorm of right-wing anger, that had a new president in Brazil picking fights with gays, native peoples, and the rainforest on his inauguration day. The headline on Finan O'Toole's year-end column gave us the thread of new normals. Oddly enough, one of the things that really struck me as being the most resonant image, even though it's not the most important story in the world, but the wildfires in California, you know, because here you have the part of the world that is arguably the most privileged, one of the richest places in the world, but also, of course, at the cutting edge of all of these great technologies that we have mm. in the 21st century, where we're getting this incredible sense of power. We can control our destiny. We can change the nature of the human mind and the human body. Those first trillion-dollar corporations, Apple and the Amazon. The first trillion-dollar corporations, yeah, for briefly at least in, in last year, you know, you had both Apple and Amazon reaching the trillion-dollar market capitalization. So you have this kind of narrative on the one side of this extraordinary power of contemporary capitalism. And then you see these wildfires, which don't really give a damn about your trillion-dollar corporations. Our powerlessness in the face of these forces. And yet, in a sense, it's a kind of willed helplessness. Of course, we're always at the mercy of nature, and we should always remind ourselves of that. But also, this is partly a result of us ignoring the biggest thing that's happening in our world, which is climate change, and not being willing to fully face up to it. Fintan, you borrowed Tim Snyder's line about sado-populism in the world, but there's a digital connection there too, both manipulated but maybe symptomatic. We have the literal wildfires, but we also have this kind of political wildfire. There's a popular rage. It sort of doesn't matter if we hurt ourselves so long as we can convince ourselves that we're hurting somebody else more, you know, and that we, we hate them more than we love ourselves in a way. You know, the, mm. Brazil is a great example of this, you know, Brazil being kind of wide open territory, kind of a wild west technologically, not much regulation, not much capacity to, to control what was being said in the Brazilian elections. And so... You get a figure like Bolsonaro, you know, who is outwardly obnoxious, you know, so it's not like he's kind of a nasty man who's pretending to be nice to get elected. He's absolutely outwardly, explicitly homophobic, racist, misogynistic. He's set on 
the destruction of the Amazon rainforest, which again is an existential issue for humanity. I mean, this is one of the bulwarks we have against disaster. One of his first acts as president has been to hand the Amazon rainforest over to the Department of Agriculture, meaning that it's to be logged and it's to be destroyed. There's another piece of this Sado populism, Fintan, that I hadn't really thought about. We're being test marketed all the time for how much worse our governments might be. Trump at the border, how brutally can we treat children, for example? Or Salvini in Italy with the refugees in the Mediterranean. Bolsonaro talking openly about torture, testing the idea. Yeah, it is kind of, sadly, (laughs) it's continuing. And these reactionary forces are very, very good at just dipping a toe in the water, just seeing how far we can go, how far we can go, pulling back if necessary. You know, you probably see Bolsonaro, for example, I'm sure, you know, in the first couple of months, he'll make all sorts of overtures to all sorts of people and say, I'm not really a bad guy after all, you know. But then something outrageous is done. It's like you create it in language first, you know, yes. to take your example of Bolsonaro, you know, where he kind of openly praises torture and openly praises the military. And so, you know, the problem with the military actually was that, in fact, they tortured too many people but didn't kill them. Mm. You say the most outrageous things and you push the boundaries of what's sayable as far as you possibly can. And then on desert, then you move back a bit. You sort of say, well, I only meant that metaphorically or I didn't, you know, I wasn't really saying this is what I'm going to do. But you keep pushing the boundaries of the permissible. You know, we've now had in the United States, we've had two children who've died in federal custody. I mean, children dying. And I'm not saying this is deliberate, you know, but it's, it is a result of a policy. It's a result of a way of treating these people. Fenton, one more big point about inequality. Even as we feel it in the United States, it's reaching a point where it dissolves the fundamental notion of a democracy, that we're all in it together, at some level, fundamentally equal. The Irish political philosopher Philip Pettis said, you know, the test of a democracy is what he called the eye test. Can we look one another in the eye without reason for fear or deference? We're not afraid of each other and we don't defer to each other. It's about human dignity at that sort of basic level that we all have equal dignity. That is the greatest idea in human history. It's the most important idea in human history. But it's not one that you can just take for granted and think, well, you know, okay, we did that. It's great. We've got it in our constitution, whatever. It's lovely. If you have that idea, and at the same time, almost all the fruits of economic growth are going to a very small elite at the top, then you're living a lie. You're saying that our societies are ones in which everybody counts as much as everybody else, but in fact, the processes, the economic processes, are creating more and more wealth for the top 1% and the top 1% of the 1%, while most other people are struggling just to hold what they have. And this is incompatible with democracy. Fintan, there's a point that dawned on me at the end of 2018, and you haven't mentioned it so far, and that is simply that looking at the whole globe, looking from the middle of Africa or China or the North Pole, the old-time grown-ups in the family of nations, the imperial powers, the United States, Britain, France, even Italy are in total disarray for years now. I mean, there's Trump politics in our country, Brexit, nobody seems to have recovered in England, Italy going fascist, it seems, France totally confused. What's up? Yeah, it's ironic, isn't it, Chris? You know, we're 100 years since the Treaty of Versailles, the end of the First World War, the kind of new world order that was instituted, really, largely by Woodrow Wilson in 1919. It's a very odd centenary to be in, in a way, because you're kind of, on the one hand, sort of marking this idea that we need a new kind of multilateral world order in which, you know, all peoples are free and everybody can participate equally and 
there's no big bully in the room. But we also have to mark the fact that that's not what happens. I mean, what you, you got is a kind of resurgence of empire. And now I think you're absolutely right. This kind of cycle is almost like 100 years on, finally coming to be that none of those imperial powers really functions mm. anymore. I mean, the United States, certainly from the outside, looks like it's having this kind of enormous nervous breakdown. Well, so does England, for that matter, and France is in I love, I look at Brexit. Brexit is a kind of weird, like the zombie imperial cult. <laughs> you know, France, as you say, is, is deeply unsure about itself. You know, maybe finally what we're seeing is actually the working out of all the stuff that Woodrow Wilson was promising 100 years ago. Why does it take so long for things to work themselves out in human history? You know, it's a big, big question. Fintan O'Toole, thank you so much. We love to hear you on Open Source. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Fintan O'Toole, writes also about theater in Dublin and about books in the New York Review. Steve Walt, our guest, speak of the new normals that you see out there. Uh, well, the first one is an old normal, but it's back. And that's, I'd say, the return of great power politics. So we thought we'd sort of put all that behind us. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. that we know Bill Clinton once said, I think in the early 90s, that the cynical calculus of power politics is uh, ill-suited to a new era. They really thought we were going to transcend this and have a very harmonious, peaceful world. I think we see a world now today where nationalism is back uh, with a vengeance, the nation state, people starting to erect barriers or hoping that they could erect barriers. Um, Um, Great power rivalry between the United States and Russia, between the United States and China, I think is setting the tone of a lot of world politics. So that's a new normal. It's an old one. Can I just throw it in? It feels fundamentally um, artificial, though, sort of made up. What's our contest with Russia these days? Or... Or with China, for that matter. Uh, I think if you talk to Russians about this, they think there's a real rivalry there. And I think uh, we don't, may not take it very seriously, but they do. And I think increasingly, you know, the United States has been reinforcing uh, its troops, uh, even under Donald Trump, reinforcing troops in Eastern Europe, uh, imposing greater economic sanctions, driving Russia and China together. But anyway, that's one. The okay. uh, second one is uh, actually, Fintan uh, alluded to it, essentially, the sense of powerlessness, that, that people are, Big deal. are subject to anonymous forces that they cannot control. There's nothing they can do about them, that they are uh, stuck in uh, various ruts. Uh, But at the same time, that's true of the elites in a funny way. Hmm. It's not just masses who feel powerless in the face of, say, big market forces. It's the fact that if you're in charge of a government, you can't get anything done. We have all these stories of Trump, you know, wandering around the White House raging at his uh, incapacities to get anything accomplished. Uh, Dictators actually aren't doing particularly well either. You know, Putin's having trouble at home. Uh, The Chinese economy is spinning uh, downward. Uh, there are people uh, fleeing Turkey under Erdogan, you know, the most powerful Turkish leader in decades, and yet he can't keep people from getting their, taking their money out of the country because they're worried about what's going to happen uh, there. And Brexit, as you mentioned, is just a perfect example. The elites can't control anything. They can get a referendum saying we're going to leave the European Union, and the British government cannot figure out a way to actually do what the voters said they, they wanted to do. So powerlessness, I think, is part of this we, uh, as we, well. Go ahead. Well, I uh, want you to speak about the, the, the new normal in our target population, rising generation that doesn't remember Vietnam, hmm. never heard of a Kennedy, really, never felt emotionally attached. What is that 
Well, I think pushing us. millennials have a very different view of American foreign policy and America's role in the world than predecessors. And it's not surprising. They came of age sort of beginning with 9-11 and then a series of foreign policy failures that I've already talked about. So if you go to a lot of millennials and say, you know, look, it's our job to run the world and tell everybody how to live and tell people what their political systems, I mean, they want to say, not so much, not for me. Uh, what I'd like is a government that works better here at home. I'd like some things here that we've long neglected. So I don't want to say they're isolationist. In some respects, they're more cosmopolitan than their previous generations, but they don't buy the notion of American exceptionalism or indispensability the same way that their predecessors mm. did. I wanted to add one other sort of new normal. Uh, sure. It's already been alluded to. And that's um, the discrediting of politicians and politics. Uh, it's become uh, in many places something that politicians uh, public's view with enormous distaste. And so people advance their political careers by acting and sounding as unpolitical as possible. Bolsonaro is a good example. Duterte in the Philippines is a good example. And of mm. course, Trump is a good example. The more outrageous you behave, the more hateful things you say, the more you don't sound like a typical politician. The more, you know, you, if he was a real politician, he wouldn't say something like that. You know, you know the old joke in Hollywood that if you can fake sincerity, you know, you can make it. <laughs> you can fake um, anything. Well, in a sense, if you fake, uh, if you can fake authenticity, that, well, he's not a real politician or he wouldn't say such things. That's actually the secret to political success. And in some respects, we're seeing the definition of what is acceptable political behavior be redefined before our eyes in an era where people can reach out to publics through social media directly. They don't have to go through editorial boards. They don't have to necessarily have well-crafted speeches. And you'll get even today, 41% of the American people saying that they approve of the job Donald Trump is doing, which is kind of remarkable when you consider the job he's actually done. <laughs> Steve Wald, you write about the strategic environment. Would you speak, take a crack at speaking about the feeling environment around our foreign policy? You mentioned this, this air of helplessness. And Finland was very, very good about it. I mean, here we are. We're all gods at the keyboard. We have access to more people, more information, more uh, self-control than was imaginable in the past. And yet we're all sitting here feeling totally out of the play. But more about the feeling here. Um, people are, there's a nameless dread in this atmosphere. And I hate to see the whole craft of politics being, being discredited. Yeah, the, What's happening? Uh, I, I, well, if, if in terms of uh, feelings, I think it, there has to be a, a sense of deep frustration at this point that we have been unable to do a sensible and prudent, let's call it mid-course correction or updating in light of new information. I mean, the amazing thing is, you know, we had September 11th, the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, the 2008 financial crisis, the Libya debacle. We've had a series mm. of, uh, you know, repeated failures and still, you know, first under Barack Obama, he was not able to reverse course. He was able to clean things up a little. We won't torture people anymore. But the American global we'll footprint... We could deport a lot of people, though. Yeah, we could deport a lot of people. We could use a lot of drones. We could use a lot of special forces. And we could continue to extend security guarantees to all sorts of countries so that by 2016, we were guaranteeing the security of more countries than at any time in our history. You could say that Barack Obama cleaned it up a little bit, but he didn't change it at all. And then you get Donald Trump, who really does want to tear the whole thing down with no idea what to replace it with, mind you. 
And he has had to fight sort of tooth and nail. His rhetoric and his achievements are two very different things. The United States has not made nearly as many shifts in foreign policies as you would think if you just looked at his Twitter feed or just Mm. listened to his speeches because, again, there's a strong, powerful establishment that has resisted any kind of significant reordering of American foreign policy. Come back to, at the feeling level, a, a sort of chaos around all the things we cannot talk about in Trump time. I mean, my rough impression would be that he hasn't redirected American policy so much as he's vulgarized it and largely eclipsed it. We hear phrases like trade war with China. There's no argument, no debate, no detail about what anybody means. We do, uh, similarly, a permanent break with Europe. What in the, who came up with that idea? You never heard that from anybody on the street. What does it mean, and what do we do about it? Well, it's, it's worse than that because he's, he's personalized it in ways, even in his personal dealings with other foreign leaders, uh, you know, throwing candy at Angela Merkel at a G7 summit and saying, don't say I never gave you anything. This is not the way any decent human being behaves, let alone dealing with uh, the leader of uh, one of America's uh, longtime and uh, important allies. Um, so in that sense, uh, he's, he's entirely different. What I think people fail to realize, though, is that the genius of Donald Trump, and it does lend to this feeling of chaos um, and also, uh, I, I would almost say, you know, morbid fascination, his genius is the ability to command attention. This mm-hmm. is what he has spent his whole life doing. He wanted to be famous even more than he wanted to be rich. Born rich, now he wants to be famous. And what he learned, I think, uh, very much from reality TV was how to do that, how to rivet people's attention. Partly is by being outrageous, partly is by being shameless, partly by being willing to say almost anything. Um, and is there an antidote for it? I mean, I, <laughs> I fly to music something or poetry, something enti- absolutely 180 the other way. Well, uh, first of all, you do see, and Finton uh, alluded to this as well, the virtues of a democratic system, that we do still respond to events. The fact that the election did not go Trump's way, the midterm election did not go Trump's way, and he now faces a democratic house, is the reality principle kicking in. It's Americans, some of whom might have voted for him two years previously, suddenly going, wait a minute, this was not exactly what I bargained for. So the system can uh, can respond in various mm. ways. And as I think the failures begin to pile up, that's going to be, be more evident. Whether or not it does enough to correct the damage or put us on a more intelligent path, I think, remains to be seen. But I guess in that sense, I am enough of an optimist that, you know, you can fool the people for a while, but you can't fool all of the people all of the can time. Can you hold all of their attention for three years now uh, without relief? It's, well, it's also it's also exhausting. I mean, that's the Absolutely. other part of it. It's, you know, and I think, but I, I do think, unlike a reality show, which you know has its shelf life too, eventually people do sort of get tired of the plot. They get tired of the characters. They get familiar with the leading character, and the shtick wears. He'll do something else. Uh, I, I'm remembering a sort of Walt doctrine as I took it three or four years ago, pre-Trump, before a full house at MIT. You said the reason that we don't get wiser in foreign policy is that the United States is just too damn big and strong. We don't feel the pain of our worst mistakes. A horrible adventure in Vietnam. We march right on, similarly in the Gulf. Um, We're impervious, and that's our problem. Is it still true? 
Um, uh, it's remarkably true. Uh, it, not entirely. It's not that these things don't have consequences. It's not like we didn't lose the lives of thousands of Americans in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. It's not like we didn't spend four to six trillion dollars once you add it all up in those places. But the United States suffers far more from our own mistakes than, I'm sorry, we suffer far less from our own mistakes than others do because we are still in this very favorable position geographically. We are still a a very powerful, large, diverse, robust economy. And that does permit us to keep making the same mistakes over and over again uh, with unfortunate consequences in part for us, but also for other parts of the world. Hmm. Even now, you think. We're talking about the world with the realist Stephen Walt from Harvard. Coming up, how it all might have been different. This is Open Source. An hour's walk around the world with the Harvard analyst Steve Walt. You have standing with me, Steve Walt, as one of the sainted 33 international relations professors who paid for an ad in the New York Times, September 2002, a year after 9-11, just to say that an American war on Iraq was not in our interest. It would benefit Iran more than us. It was a terrible career move for all of the signatories to spell it all out. But you were right in every single detail. It's partly because I convinced myself that the Iraq war hatched almost everything that's wrong in the world today, including Donald Trump and Trumpismo. I want you to walk through the last 15 years since that invasion in March 2003 and tell us how it might have been different. Well, I'd actually like to go before that because... Yeah, please. You can go back to, you know, Armistice Day and and Woodrow Wilson, if (laughs) you like. Versailles. That far. You know, Bill Clinton was a very lucky guy because uh, some of the mistakes he made as president did not come home to roost until after he was president. So we don't associate them with him. But uh, first of all, he adopted a policy known as dual containment in the Persian Gulf, where the United States was going to simultaneously contain Iran and Iraq together. Even though those two countries were deeply opposed, we would de- we decided we would uh, contain both of them. And that required leaving a lot of American forces in Saudi Arabia, which becomes one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that Osama bin Laden decides to attack the United States. Hmm. So dual containment helps bring about September 11th. Now... If you don't get September 11th, I don't think you ever get the Iraq war. I think that the Bush administration, even though the neocons had come up with the idea of toppling Saddam before 9-11. project for a new century and all that. project for a new American century. If you hadn't gotten the Iraq war, that lines up the stars in the Bush administration. So that project gets, uh, gets going and eventually happens. Uh, and by the way, you have no Iraq war, of course. Then you don't have any formation of ISIS. You don't have the wave of terrorism that transformed some of the politics in Europe uh, in the last couple of years uh, or so. So there's a lot uh, embedded there, and it doesn't begin just on September 11th, or it doesn't begin just with the Bush administration. Second uh, Clinton mistake, NATO expansion. Uh, We decided after the Cold War is over, where we don't have any peer competitors anymore, we we were going to spread NATO eastward as far as we could. And we declared that it was going to be open-ended. Any country Even though H.W. Bush had promised the world that if the Soviets swallowed the the reuniting of Germany, we would not advance east. The, the The Bush 41 administration had promised Gorbachev that we would not expand it beyond Germany. 
Um, well, we did that anyway, and said said this was going to create a vast zone of peace in Europe. We didn't think it was anti-Russian. We didn't intend it as being anti-Russian, but it was seen as anti-Russian by the Russians, not surprisingly. And I think it is the single most important thing, not the only thing, but the single most important thing in poisoning the relationship with Russia, which was pretty good in the 90s and got steadily worse uh, after that. So if you uh, don't like what's happening in Ukraine today, part of the blame for that is the Russian reaction, not legitimate, but understandable to the American effort to continue to spread uh, NATO eastward as well. Um, now, a third uh, thing that could have been very different and it not connected to the Iraq war at all is we got very enthusiastic about globalization. We were going to push opening markets, uh, getting government out of these things, removing barriers to trade and investment, making it really easy for uh, companies to get footloose and fancy free and for capital to flow all over the world. And this has had many positive benefits. Uh, it helped lift uh, probably a billion people out of the lowest forms of poverty in India and China. But it also created a much more unstable financial system in the world. We've had financial crises beginning in the late 1990s and culminating in 2008. And it had destabilizing effects on jobs in Europe and in the United States. So if we'd gone a little bit more slowly in a more measured fashion, maybe brought China into the World Trade Organization after it had all of the legal institutions at home necessary to meet, uh, meet WTO requirements, that would have created a, probably a little bit less economic growth, but a more stable situation that would have avoided some of the challenges uh, that we faced. So it's, a, it's not may, a perfect world, but it would have been a better world than the war we had. But come to 2002, uh, after 9-11, what if George Bush had read your, your, your paid ad? The Times wouldn't run it as an op-ed, as I remember. You, you, you guys had to pay for that. Um, but what if he'd read it and said, well, yeah, that's right, we're upsetting the Sunni-Shia balance. This is going to play to Iran's favorite. Let's call it off. What if Tony Blair had said, George, Britain has been there in the 20s. That imperial order, that colonial assault is, is you know, past due. Um, forget about it. How, what if we had chosen not to break the Middle East, in short? Where would we be? How would that have played out step by step, well, year we, by year? We'd, needless to say, be in much better shape. I mean, first of all, our image in the world would be better because these failures didn't help uh, anyone. Second, we could have focused laser-like on al-Qaeda, not declare a war on every form of terrorism around the world, but focus on the perpetrators of 9-11. Uh, we might actually have been able to find bin Laden a little faster had we not been distracted by doing uh, doing some other things as well. We, I think, we would not have then uh, taken it upon ourselves to try and chase down every violent extremist in every part of the world. We would have saved enormous amounts of money. Uh, we would not have empowered some uh, pretty unsavory governments. Uh, uh, places like Yemen, which we repeatedly intervened in in this period uh, for anti-terrorist reasons, might be stable today. We may not have had the mm -hmm. tragedy that is now unfolding in Yemen, where we played a role in the 90s and uh, after 9-11 in supporting different governments there and going after al-Qaeda al there. So in, in a sense... Um, you know, had had Bush focused solely on the immediate problem, which was dealing with Al Qaeda, and not tried to reorganize the politics of the Middle East, starting with Iran and hopefully some other countries as well, Syria and 
uh, I'm sorry, starting with Iraq and then hopefully Syria and Iran. Had we done any of those things, I think the uh, world would not be perfect, but it'd be much better. We would not, among other things, have, have, have repurposed the Abu Ghraib prison in, in Iraq. We would not have made torture a kind of standard operating procedure among American troops abroad, a horrible setback. And there are other just simple moral lines that we crossed there. What, what well, else? I'll, I'll give you another one. So I think many people, uh, certainly realists like me, would say that the only real rival the United States now faces in the world potentially is China um, and that its power has increased significantly. I don't think it's anywhere near as strong as the United States yet, but it's something to take seriously. We would have had more time to focus on that problem, more uh, presidential and senior uh, diplomatic time, uh, more money to spend on military systems that might be relevant for our competition with China, while we were busy spending the last 25 years getting bogged down in various places that ultimately didn't matter and which we've made worse by being there. Um, so in a sense, we took we ourselves took our eye off the ball by getting so obsessed with terrorism and so obsessed with trying to spread democracy in every part of the world that we missed what was really the emerging strategic challenge and the one that I think most subsequent administrations are going to have to deal with. How, how, much, how much credit do we have to uh, accept for terrorism? I mean, how much, how much it would seem from here, the deposing of the Sunni regime in Iraq uh, was was the great seedbed of of what we call terrorism, what we call ISIS? No, I mean, how much how much don't well, we have to take an awful lot of responsibility for making the terrorism that we claim to be fighting? Um, yes and no. I mean, so Al Qaeda predates uh, the invasion of Iraq by more than a decade, um, and I think the roots of Islamic terrorism, as with other forms of terrorism, including right wing terrorism here in the United States, shouldn't be forgotten. Um, are reactions to many different things. Uh, it, in the case of al-Qaeda, it's a reaction partly against the governments in the Middle East that they regard as illegitimate or oppressive uh, and uh, certainly a series of pretty un, uh, unsavory governments um, and also partly reaction to what they regard as repeated foreign interference. And that's the part that we can claim some responsibility for where U.S. foreign policy towards the Middle East has been the principal justification that they have used for recruiting. Uh, as well. So some of their uh, accusations are probably invalid. Some of them, I think, do have some uh, some merit as well. So yes, the United States plays uh, some role for the creation of these uh, institutions, but we're not the only reason uh, that, that violent extremists emerge from that part of the world or in some other parts of the world. Other effects of the Iraq war, and to me, we, we could spend all week um, inventorying them, but I bet you've seen a remarkable study by a friend of mine, Francis Shen, and others, but basically it's an electoral analysis of the counties in the United States that voted for Obama and then switched not to Hillary but to Trump. In Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, the Rust Belt, the Heartland, Red State America, um, disproportionate in the the critical counties had a suffered disproportionate casualties in the war in Iraq. They've, they've seen the opioids. They've seen um, the victims of, of, of the blob's policy over decades. Without apology, without explanation, they feel cannon fodder and they voted for Trump. I don't think... We'd never heard of Trump seriously 
as a protest candidate without the war in Iraq? That would be my premise. What do you think? Well, again, I think a lot of this goes into uh, a lot of different things go into Trump's candidacy. It's partly that. It's partly the effects of globalization. It's partly, uh, at least in my view, a fear of immigration. Um, and in a sense, Trump has been very good at threat inflating the same way the blob does. He just points to a different set of threats. Uh, the threat mm. is people coming across the border. The threat is someone who's going to take your job or things like that. Um, as well. Um, I mean, I think the other th- aspect of this is the United States has been at war a lot over the last 25 years in various ways. We're doing this with an all-volunteer force. We're doing this with the National Guard. We're forcing these people into various rotations, and the wars are open-ended. All right, they, mm-hmm. The war in Afghanistan now in its uh, 18th year. Um, and this eventually has a corrosive effect. Um, and, you know, we, we're talking about new normals. Uh, one of the features it's had is it's made the military an institution that you can't criticize. And we should respect the sacrifice that soldiers make and the dedication of generals, but they are not omniscient. Uh, they are not above criticism. When their policies fail, uh, they should be called to account for it. And it's it's quite, to me, it's quite interesting to see that now there's a series of generals whom Trump has discarded who are regarded afterwards uh, uh, as uh, almost sacred figures. Um, and that's not right, not in a democracy. Uh, no general, no person should be beyond criticism or beyond being held to account. And I think that is partly a consequence of both Iraq and Afghanistan and the endless war on terror that we've gotten very accustomed to be being fighting somewhere. You know, it's not on page one, it's on page 17. But it's happening uh, all the time. And I don't think a democracy can do that for too long without beginning to lose uh, the proper relationship between the civilian side and the mm. military side. Steve, well, JFK, I'm just reminded, spoke of the unfinished public business as, as his agenda. Seems to be arguable that the, on the top of that agenda today would be climate change, of course, inequality in this country, and learning to live amicably, productively, happily with a powerful China. Speak to the China piece. What might we be doing when when the Trump voice is conjuring a trade war of all things with, with, with the nation that makes everything we work with every day? Well, I mean, there is, I think, a growing consensus, uh, including among people who are not Trump supporters, that you know China was not living up to the various obligations it undertook when it uh, entered the World Trade Organization, and that China needed to be called on that. Um, so, in that sense, Trump is correct to to try and get tough with China. Now, I think he's gone about it in entirely the wrong way, um, and he may get China's attention, but he would have been much, uh, I think, better served had he, uh, first of all, stayed within the Trans-Pacific Partnership and gotten together with our European and Canadian, Mexican, Japanese, South Korean allies and all come together and say, all right, look, China, you've got to change some of your uh, your practices. Um, there's maybe limits to what China is willing to do there. We'll see. Uh, but that would have been a more effective strategy than what I think they're doing now, which is sort of stamping our feet and threatening tariffs. And we've seen what has happened to the U.S. stock market as well. Trump's statement that trade wars are fun and easy to win does not seem to be uh, borne out uh, so far. Um, but I actually wanted to go back to something else you alluded to. You, you mentioned uh, inequality and climate change. I mean, it gets back to my my comment earlier about powerlessness, right? So, hmm. I mean, 
here's climate change, which is going to have enormous impact on all of our lives. It already is. This is one where our political system is broken, has been unable to respond to it. It's a huge, vexing challenge, both domestically and internationally, and we appear to be almost incapable uh, of action on mm. it. Uh, similarly, uh, I think it gives... Doesn't, doesn't it pain you to say that as abs- it does for me a- to hear it? Absolutely. We're, we're getting... We're a wonderful, conversational, open, free-spirited country, and we can't talk about this stuff? Well, we can talk about it. The problem is we can't reach decisions about it. And that gets at the third thing you mentioned, which is inequality, because there's two dimensions to inequality, right? There's the purely economic part of it, the fact that people at the lower end of the economic order are leading increasingly desperate, uh, fragile, precarious lives, while the 1% and above are uh, essentially insulating themselves almost entirely from the consequences of, of policy decisions. You don't think we have a decent law enforcement system, live in a gated community with a lot of private guards, and then you're safe. Uh, you don't like uh, the public transportation system. Well, that's okay. You have a limo or you have a private jet. You don't have to worry about any of these things. And therefore, you don't want to spend any tax money because you don't need those things. You're paying for them uh, yourselves. But the real problem is, of course, that 1% exerts disproportionate political power. So it's harder for the political system to make the adjustments that are necessary to actually create a functioning society. And I, it's funny, you asked me about feelings. I keep thinking about, about the ancien regime in France, right? <laughs> Where you had a, a, a less than 1% really ruling over everybody else. And You're talking 1789? Yes, I'm, ta- I'm talking about 1789 and beyond. And that <laughs> did not end well for the ancien regime. Now, the the glass half full side of this has been the sort of explosion of, I think, legitimate political activity. Um, we, we didn't just see the Congress shift, uh, you know, Democrat control of the House. We saw a bunch of very unusual people get elected, people who look different, who sound different, whose approaches are different. Um, we're, and, we're, we're actually seeing a new Nancy Pelosi, too. Uh, I think kind that, of amazing. That, that, that may be, be right as well, that, that you know, the, if there's hope here, it's that uh, this is still a relatively flexible system. Uh, it's one where individuals can make a difference as they turn out and as they mobilize. And we're seeing a lot of that happening in a variety of places, much the same way we did in the progressive era of the early 20th mm-hmm. century. When you had similar concentrations of wealth, you had similar issues with immigration, you had similar concerns about what America's role in the world was going to be. Um, and you saw an explosion of political activity that led to, you know, trust busting and a variety of things that then I think bring us ultimately in the depression, the new deal. I, there's no guarantee that this will happen again, but that's the kind of thing that you have to look for and hope for in this political system. Oh, come on. Give us a guarantee of something, Steve. Come on. Give us a guarantee that you'll come back. And do, I, I will this be, is exactly the kind of conversation we I'm wanted al- to have. I'm always delighted to come back here. And the one guarantee is, unfortunately, is we are going to be living in interesting times. Yeah. Well, bring some friends. We're going we're gonna to look at the world despite Trump, around Trump, no matter what. Thank you, Steve Walt. Thank you also, Fintan O'Toole in Dublin. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Rebecca Panovka, and the artist Susan Coyne. Matt Lizette is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our Secretary of State. She's not a member of the Blob. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time on Open Source.